Welcome back to The Transformationist. I'm Tash McGill. Thank you to all those who listened, offered feedback, and shared the double episode last week featuring Dr. Jeff Crabtree. A couple of things I want to clarify before we go further. There were some really important timeline details that didn't quite get the spotlight last week. In particular, uh, Possum Plows, Amy Goldsmith and Lydia Cole, three New Zealanders who went on record with their stories related to music industry executives and managers, and they did it well before the research dropped in Australia. Their actions were a really important part of the catalytic moments that led to the accused being removed from power and to some significant change here in New Zealand. And it's a really important piece that can't be glossed over, particularly because if you have paid any attention to the unfolding stories of abuse within the Hillsong Church in the last couple of weeks, you may have noticed the minimization of the people at the centre of the abuse. And the last thing I want to do is follow that same pattern, especially given my own experiences. So I want to assure you, the next part of the story is an episode focused on the survivors and coming forward to tell their stories, the bravery and courage required to own their narratives and to keep their power and their wits about them when navigating power imbalance, harassment and abuse. I'm also shining a spotlight on the role of journalism and bringing those stories to light, challenging public fatigue and helping survivors to own their narratives and keep their power. So I've invited journalists, survivors and experts to join me in the follow-up episode coming in the next couple of weeks. But for now, please forgive my croaky throat in this week's interview. I was recovering from COVID-19. I'm introducing you to someone who makes change happen in organisations and NGOs. We talk about pillars of transformation, tough conversations, embracing vulnerability and more. Hey, it's a real delight to have Bruce Pilbrow joining me today, um, partly because it's really good to see you and it's been way too long since we've had one of these conversations, but it's a bit of a thrill to have you in the mix on this season of The Transformationist because you are one of the original change artists that I first met in the business world. You are somebody who every organization that you've been in, um, whether it's been in a sort of, you know, a a middle management or a management role within marketing um, or communications, or it's actually been as, you know, one of your more recent roles, actually the title of chief transformation officer, (laughs) you are a change artist. You, you go into places and they cannot, they cannot remain unchanged, untouched, um, um, as a result of of you being there. And so as this season, we're unpacking stories of business, organizational and social change. Your voice, I think, is a really important one to bring to the table because you've been deeply involved in a lot of different types of organizations in New Zealand. Um, but the lessons I think that you'll have for us and the observations will be, I think, p- applicable across the board. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you. And... I'd love to ask you straight off the bat, without diving into, you know, who are you and what do you do now and blah, 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 all those sorts of things. You are, are in fact, a transformationist. Um, I would love to know, when I ask you, what does transformation mean to you in the context of organisational change or social change? What does it look like from your experience, having having created it in so many places? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question to start off with, actually, because I think, you know, when you first said it, I guess it's a willingness to, to think about things differently or to challenge thinking. Um, and sometimes that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll end up with change, but it's an openness to go, actually, if we wanted to look at something differently, it's okay to do that. I think I think in a lot of, a lot of instances I come across in life is that people aren't willing to learn or to adapt or to potentially have an adult conversation that may be awkward and uncomfortable but really important. And the result, maybe you don't change. But the result could be you could find some gold where you go, shoot, actually, we could do this differently. And isn't that cool? So let's have a talk, let's have a chat about that. So for me, change really comes from a, it's more of an attitudinal thing. It's kind of going, are we, are we, always, are we always in a state of wanting to improve and challenge the norm, um, even though we may return to what we all know? But, all, but don't take away the challenge. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I was, I'm tr- probably yeah. fumbling my way through there, but you know what I'm trying to say is that I'm just on a cruiser. <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to have it. <laughs> if, if you don't want to change, don't bring me near your business because I I, um, I, just can't maintain. I'm not a maintainer um, in that aspect mm-hmm. here. Uh, is there ever a place? <laughs> is there ever a place where where status quo, you know, is acceptable? Totally. Or, or do you think, hey, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. But, yeah. What does that look like? What's the opposite? What's the I opposite? Think, and the and the purposeful opposite. Well, I think the, the challenge with a change maker or someone coming into business too is they don't listen. So they go, they come in with a pre, a pre, a pre proposed idea of you know, hey, I, I think you should do this. You, you should have a pink wall instead of a blue wall, and that's even the conversation. That's what we're going to do, without actually getting context or understanding kind of why they have a blue wall in the first place. You could actually make a major mistake and screw it up as well. So. I, I think I, I look at change in three sort of three key blocks for me. For me, I look at what is the best from the past that we should celebrate and embrace? Um, what do we need to succeed right now? And what does it look like to move forward and, and change? You know, mm-hmm. what is the future? How are we trying to, I guess, uh, see what shifts are happening within the business culture or within different things uh, that you should be aware of and ahead of the game on? But you can't do that without embracing the good from the past. Because there'd be gold, mm-hmm. gold would be that, that started something that, that is still fundamentally really important to the ethos or the integrity of the, of the brand or the product. But it's good to have that conversation of kind of, is it doing well today and everything we expect and where can you pivot to for the future that can make that product last 50 years or 100 years, you know, rather than just three mm-hmm. years. And I don't think enough of that happens. I think you, you become very settled because you're doing well now, but if you don't adapt... Uh, sometimes it's too late to adapt because it starts falling away or breaking or whatever. Yeah. So change is a discussion that needs to be healthy and, and had. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I remember a few years ago, I think it was as you were exiting um, a CEO role where you'd actually done quite transformational change in that organisation yeah. that you you actually quite publicly owned up to being a change artist. Yeah. You know, if you want things to stay the same, don't hire me because I'm going to come in and make things different. Yeah. One of the things that that gives you an advantage in is that you, you've you actually got years more practice, yeah. so many more instances of practice and asking those questions about what's good from the past that we need to keep, what's mm. working now, and then what does the future look like? So can you tell me a little bit about as you move through those opportunities, how do you tackle those conversations? What have you learned along the yeah. way about asking some of those questions? Well, and, and I think just come back to your earlier point, I think there's a point too as a CEO where I've got to go, actually, my time's up and I need to leave because otherwise you mm-hmm. start to find things to break. <laughs> right? So you can make change in an organisation yes. and set up to be in a really good place, but then you can actually become dangerous to the organisation if you go into a cruise mentality because then you'll go, well, I'm just going to make change for the sake of change. And that's 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 terrible. And I found myself in that situation from time to time. Mm. Um, change is actually amoral. Really. It is. Like it's neither, it's neither, the process of change is neither good nor no. bad without without being tied to an outcome. Correct. And that outcome is the thing that has, that has you know, moral yeah. worth. And it will involve tough conversations. It will involve people feeling uncomfortable. It will test people's vulnerability and their willingness to sit in the pain, including yourself. Mm. Uh, and often mm-hmm. change comes from a perspective of going, shit, this is really hard. I'm not really enjoying this, um, but I've got to push through because I believe this is the right thing to do. It's, it's, it's you know, like when we did Change at Yellow, for example, one of the big shifts I made affected 100 jobs. Now, everyone agreed it was the right thing to do, but it was a horrible time. And I, and I yeah, was the catalyst yeah. of that time. So, you know, it wasn't about being popular. It was about doing what's best for the product or the business or, in that case, the EBITDA, <laughs> you know, the return, the return <laughs> on investment because um, you have a responsibility yeah. for that. But I guess going back to your thing about kind of what is the main thing that you sort of go into, I guess the big thing that I've learned is that when I was a, when I was a CEO when I was younger, um, in my 30s, uh, I was an arrogant little prick. So I basically went in, and I, I think of conversations I've had with some of the people that you and I know in, in this industry, where I sort of went in and said, this is what I do, get over it, move, this is where we're going. And all people would see would be elbows and heels <laughs> of me running ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I learned very quickly that there was aspects of that that really worked well. You know, if you want to quick turn around, that's great. Um, but for the most part, it's an absolute disaster. Um, because change only sticks if you bring on your people and your environment with you to the sense that they um, that they foster and, and embrace it and basically then take over and move it forward. So slowing mm. down, listening, getting a lay of the land, really understanding what really is good about the organisation you're working for, um, but then encouraging the organisation again, like I said, to have a conversation and go, yeah, that's cool, but what would this look like? 
And is it worth having a conversation and should we do it? And then the third thing I'd say about change is once you make up your mind to change, and I've seen this happen a lot, people spend three years doing it. It kills people. Mm. So change is not easy, as you said. So once you make up your mind to do it, do it. Fast. Yeah. 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 Stay the course and go. How many, yeah, how many people <laughs> do you know and I know where staff have been dragged through multiple changes and there's no real clear vision of where we're going? It goes on for years and years and years. And at the end, everyone's like, well, that wasn't very nice and I don't even think we're any further ahead. So once you make a change and you're very clear about it, then get, it, get into it and make it happen. Yeah. I think mm. I answered your question. So let's talk about- <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. You okay. did. Um, I do. I think. I think as we go, we'll circle back to diving into yeah, sure. you know some of the nitty gritty of those transformational kind of conversations and questions. But I am interested then. Um, once you once you are going, you know, once you are in the midst of transformation, yeah. um, are there certain pillars that you have uh, learned to recognise or that you've seen? repeat over and over that that are important for people to consider that are things that you now pay attention to um again i can't i come back to people um so go back to that yellow example uh, where we had the change we made affected 100 people what was really clear to them is that i laid out a very clear vision of where we're going and why we need to go there and therefore and mm. what we expected the benefit to be to the greater good i guess if that's, if that's the right answer um and, and yeah. in the case of yellow you had new owners um, they had a very terrestrial print-based model. They had to move to a digital model. It took a different type of personality to, or, or skill set to run that. And everyone saw the writing on the wall. All I did was stand up and say, well, I'm actually going to put the writing on the wall. <laughs> and here it is. And everyone looks at it and goes, oh, I get that. I see the vision. Once people are on board with that, then even though it affects them personally and it hurts, it's very hard for them to argue with it. And that's a very different type mm. of change versus not sharing anything, and then suddenly you get an envelope that says, well, we're looking at your role and we're in a consultation period, et cetera, et cetera, but you've got no idea why it's happening. So change, the, the, the big pillar for me is that you have to be open. Uh, well, as Brianne Brown says, clear is kind. You need to be clear, um, and that has been kind, even though it, it can be difficult for people to sit in there. That's probably my biggest thing I've learned, the biggest pillar that I'd never change. So I'm very clear about my mm. intentions. I'm uh, I don't like being um, disingenuous, I guess, if that's the right word. Um, and I'm not saying mm-hmm. I haven't done that in my past, but I've learned by being less disingenuous and a bit clearer that I get a, a much more um, – it's, it's just better. <laughs> I've just learned from, a, I've learned from <laughs> my mistakes um, a number, number of times, you know, but I've you know, not done well by people because I haven't been clear. Mm. So clarity. Absolutely. People. But, and clear, and clear, what and else? clear vision, clear direction. So clear – Clarity is mm-hmm. I'm so so I come people know that when I'm coming in I'm gonna have a hard look at it. So I'm really clear about that. But I make sure people are part of the conversation. And then I'm very clear once we make a decision of where we're going, that it is populated amongst everyone saying this is where we're going, this is why we're going, and it's gonna affect some of you and it's gonna be uncomfortable. But I think we all agree because I've listened and we've talked about it, mm-hmm. that's where we need to go. Um, mm. You're describing quite a consultative model. Yeah. Is that something that you've found has been actually how you've operated in those yep. in those environments? Is actually the the bringing in um, an ex- even when internal, really an external objective perspective to be able to listen to aggregate information and then provide recommendations yeah. about the way forward. Yeah. Um, is there space for collaboration? In your experience, yeah, there is. And how does that? How does that? Yeah, work? I mean, I haven't always been consultative or collaborative in my approach. Um, you know, in my early days, I was like, I'm hot shit, so we'll do what I say, and I've done that, <laughs> and, and it's complete, complete, complete failure. I just walked away looking like an asshole. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, and, but I do want to circle back to that because there are times when you can't be consultative because the environment doesn't allow it. So I'll give you an example of that in a sec. But for the most part. Um, uh, and I, it's funny, I find this more in corporate than I do in NGO, is that I find mm. in corporate people are used to change happening a lot, uh, typically. So uh, if you go to a big organisation, they pivot every couple of years. So I found... Hey, you go to a big organisation, they have a change management they department. They do, yeah. As, as a friend <laughs> described it to me, it's like a choo-choo train go around the office and you're just waiting for it to come back to your stop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was, it was there two years ago. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, oh, three years right on schedule. Yeah, yeah. Must be time for a restructure. So is that. But I think what, one of the biggest things I learned at Yellow is that a lot of change before uh, the, new, the new executive team came in was really focused around getting improving profits. And so what they did is they went mm. on this train trip of just every year trying to cut and save and move and change uh, to improve profit, profits. Um, what the new team did was go, well, that's just changing to do that. What does change look like where we can improve profits but also change ourselves to look better for the future and, and pivot for mm. the future? Uh, I'm not sure if they've totally got there yet, but, but it was a different type of methodology, if you understand what I'm saying. And then when it yeah. comes to changing for the future, then the first thing you've got to look at is the talent around you. So, for example, um, when we look at digital transformation or, or uh, where I was leading, I'm not an IT guy, I've got no idea, but I found someone on the team who was about three or four rungs down who had been ignored, who one day approached me with the best idea in the world and I just pulled them out and said, mate, just run with that, let's, let's have a look at that, let's pull that apart. And so off, more often than not, um, it's find the talent within that can take you on the journey as well. So it's, it's mm. collaborative, but it's also... Um, I like to think, and I hope this doesn't sound too conceited, I think I'm a good spotter of talent. Well, maybe put it the other way, I'm definitely not the brightest guy in the room. So I'm very happy to bring people <laughs> who are way brighter than me up. All I do is clear the way right. for them. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You mentioned the difference between the speed of change or the expectation of change, mm-hmm. or dare I say the wallpaper of change that exists within corporate uh, expectation. Yeah. But you also made a passing reference to NGO. And again, one of the interesting things about your portfolio is that you have plenty of NGO um, or not-for-profit experience yeah. as well as this this corporate space. So let's unpack some of the differences because certainly there are uh, there there are insights, advantages, yeah. disadvantages on both 100%. sides of of that divide. Yeah. So if I was going, I was going. I guess if I was going to put it in a real simple way, I found that in corporate it can be a bit more transactional. A plus B equals C. Mm-hmm. And, and as long as you're clear and you had a clear strategy, that was a fairly simple conversation to have. Um, I find an NGO, you have A plus B, but then you have an A plus A point one, point two, point three, and a B point one, point two, point three. And that is things like a lot of people in NGO don't do the work because they want to be financially better or they do it because it involves a, a bit more of their heart, their spirit, you know, the wider, uh, their, their sense of, um, wanting to give back their altruistic nature, et cetera, et cetera. So the conversation is a quite a different conversation because often an NGO, you're saying we need to change, which feels quite corporate and aggressive, um, but so much is invested from a heart and soul perspective that it's it, you can have a bit of a clash there. So you need to spend more mm. time uh, laying down the vision and, and that's where that best in the past, current and future is really important because you're saying, what we have done to date has been amazing. And because of that, these lives have changed. That's incredible. But the reality is today that the teenager today is very different to the teenager of 20 years ago. So if we don't change and adapt and, and, and do that, uh, you know, talk to that group, then we are effectively in the future going to become ineffective because we're not going to talk the same language. So it, it's coming from a different perspective rather than A plus B equals C. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it's advantageous both ways. So I did well in yellow, yellow and the owners said I did it. They loved my attitude because I always went with the methodology of every dollar we spend, I'm going to treat it like my own. Because when you're mm-hmm. an NGO, mm-hmm. you're, ta- you're taking a dollar and you're trying to make it two. You're trying to make everything yes. spin twice as better, twice as better. That's bad English. <laughs> better? <laughs> twice. We'll let you off the hook. But you know what I'm saying? You had that, you had that methodology. <clears throat> twice as well. Thank you. You have that methodology from NGO. So when you bring that into a corporate environment, before we spend a hundred thousand dollars, I'm going. Well, wait a sec. Are we sure? Are we getting two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars worth of value? But it's so it can work both ways quite very very well. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's. I do find an NGO. I've been really lucky in the spirit because the, the people here really were up for change. They knew they wanted a new CEO that would come and change it, and so there was an appetite appetite mm. for it. But equally, I've gone to organisations where they say they want to change, but when you start to do it, they don't want to change. Tell me about that. How do you know now? Because I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure you've got 
but but there there have got to be signals that you're reading. I mean, I know I have them when I walk into a, an initial consult with a potential client. I you know there are red flags that I'm spotting, yeah. or there are things that I'm looking out for. Some of them are green flags, yeah. some of them are red flags. What are the ones that 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 you look out for? Uh, you, that, usually, that are all green they, at spirit. Well, I'll go for the red. The red ones are usually things like oh, but or we used to, or we've done that before, mm-hmm. or you know, back in 1975 mm-hmm. we did this. They're the red flags because you know, so unproductive history is, telling yeah, is, and yeah. and resistance resistance yeah um, and I get that like it's uh, and then the green flags are um, we're excited we um, you create a culture where you allow ideas to come to the forefront um, you're open to realizing the best ideas could come from the person who suits before versus the CEO um, mm-hmm. so yeah yellow is a really good example so so. I was walking down the hallway once, uh, one of the days, and I had this guy come up to me. And so I've got this really cool idea. I said, you got 10 minutes? I went, yeah, sure, bro. So, so again, being open, right? You're not, you're not this big, wanky CTO or whatever you want to call yourself. You're just Bruce. And you go in the room, mm-hmm. and the guy shows you the idea, and you go, wow, yeah, that's amazing, man. He goes, yeah, well, let's just keep it to you and I, I said, because my immediate boss doesn't like me doing this, right? So you instantly hit a problem right there. Now, that yeah. guy now is currently the chief transformation officer at Yellow. And it was his idea that really, I mean, I like to say it's my idea, but it wasn't. It was really his thinking and his ideology that really was the smarts to the table that helped us create a digital solution. Um, so it's really been um, willing to just freaking get out of your own way and just listen and see what's going on around you. Um, and that's the green lights I'm looking for is the people on the team that are really wanting to engage make it, and, and actually love this so much they actually want to see it do better. And then it's you. It's mm-hmm. you enabling to do that, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, how many people do you know and I know that are so threatened by talent that they'll never change the organisation? Yeah, well, everyone who ever fired me, clearly. <laughs> Case in point. And that's probably why I get fired as well because, you know. It's wonderful how that storytelling goes, yeah. eh? It's like, wow. But that's, but that, All of those but people. But that's true, Tash. I mean, the true, Tash, is that people like you and I, and there's others like us that that make people feel uncomfortable. It's not because we're horrible people. It's because we will ask those questions around, okay, I know we've been doing that for the last 150 years, but the reality is that the market's saying this and we're not communicating with it, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I've had an instance, I said to you before about um, sometimes you have to be transactional with your change. I remember going to a a business or an NGO actually and – they had basically misinformed me about how bad they were doing financially. I don't know. If, part of it was I didn't do due diligence enough, but part of it was when you dug in, it was she was in real trouble. And the reality was it was November, and I had to put on the board and say, by April, we're closing the doors because we are burning cash at this rate. Um, mm. So the change I'm going to give you now is going to be short, it's going to be sharp, it's going to be a scalpel, it's going to be painful. But what it will do is means that we can still deliver this amazing service to the people that we're serving. Well, all the shit at the fan. You can't do this. Mm. It's too aggressive. We love these people, blah, blah, blah. And what happens, what happened in that instance is they forgot completely about the audience that they're serving. Mm-hmm. You know, so that if the business closed, thousands of people won't get their lives changed versus the short-term yeah, part. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So there are times where you've mm-hmm, got to go mm-hmm. and be that guy. I hate that personally, but um, um, but yeah, there was that transactional change I don't enjoy at all. I'm, I'm about mm. building something. Well, what do you love about it? Let's talk about the building something. What are the things that, what what's the personal DNA of change, not just how to make change happen, but but the the markers of, of good change. One of the things I like to say is that I'm all about making good change yeah. in the world, you know, not not just change for the sake of it, but making good change in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, knock on wood, that's not cultural appropriation of um, John Lewis's good trouble. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I digress. Um, but what are the, what are some of the unique DNA markers for you as you have moved through? Because this latest change, um, from a corporate role back to, you know, an NGO with Spirit of Adventure yeah. New Zealand as a CEO there, you know, you're back into a space that's working with young people. It's very much um, social focused. It has lots of social positive outcomes. Yeah. What's the unique DNA that 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 hooked you in? Um, I, I think for me personally, 
over the last sort of five years, I've been on my own sort of journey. You know, I, both parents died in 2017, as you know, within sort of three months of each other. And when you lose a parent, I know you've just lost one recently, um, it brings up mm-hmm. a lot of shit, whether you like it or not. And I, I'm not talking about daddy issues or money issues or, or maybe there's a bit of that, but but it really does make you think about life and I guess think about kind of the difference that you're making um, in life. And I'm not saying you can't make a difference in corporate stuff like that. You can. You can be the most amazing boss that can make a huge difference. Um, I love that book. Is it called Legacy, which is about the All Blacks? I think it's called Legacy, where um, mm-hmm. I think Richie McCall said it, uh, is that when he puts the black jersey on, when he gives it back, it wants to, he wants it to be better than when he put it on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think for me, what drives me in change is that sense of, if, I, if I'm being, I see it as a privilege coming to someone's spirit, right? A 50-year heritage, the baton's been passed to me and I can do one of two things with it. I can either go to status quo um, and there's times for that, but I'm not the right guy for that. Or I can go, actually, when I hand this back, whenever that may be, um, I'm going to hand it back in a much better way, right? But it's not about having a new ship or nicer offices. A better way for me is that we've impacted more young people. We've made a massive systemic difference in the lives of young people. Um, we have maybe shifted some of the terrible dials that are in New Zealand. So for me, Change now for me, I guess, as a marker is that I'm looking for things that, um, like I found in the corporate, uh, and I love I love my time in corporate. I've learned so many good things that I now bring in the NGO. <laughs> um, but often it's about you know, EBITDA, it's about profit, it's about that's the change. We made a million dollars this year, we're going to make 1.5 next year. And you can do changes in teams and stuff like that. For me, my EBITDA is a change life. And I don't know, it gets in your blood. And it's just really hard to get it out. And after a few years back in corporate, like I said, I loved it. Um, but I just wanted to get back into – to. I love New Zealand. I just want to see our young people thrive. And this is a great brand to do it with. Um, I was very picky about who I'd go back to work for, to be fair, um, as you know. Yeah. Mm. So I want to dive in for people who are listening who are <clears> like, this might feel like a very – strange new territory of work the idea that somebody could actually make a career out of transforming things and making things better let's talk a little bit about your journey into that because I'd like for you to tell me the story of how Bruce went from being the marketing guy the comms guy the CEO guy to actually being you know, a, a specifically somebody who makes change happen and does it with a certain art form, hence why I call you, I guess, a change artist, you know. <laughs> Tell me about the story of how of how you became the Bruce you are now I, in I that just can't stop change. This shit. Maybe I think I would have been diagnosed ADHD. I shouldn't be, maybe. I just can't stop thinking. Like, it's not too late. No, no, maybe it's It's um, a really good question, eh? It's, um, and, and I... I'm trying to pinpoint kind of what it is for me. I mean, part of it is I just get bored really easily. I mean, there's a selfish thing in it that I need to be doing something that I need to be building something, maybe building on something, I guess making something better. Um, as I said before, I'm not a maintainer. And, um, mm. and I think it brings out the worst in me to be fair. I, I, I think um, I'm a square peg in a round hole for that sort of, that sort of role. Um, so I know that when I've sat on teams under other CEOs, you know, I can be the fidgety guy in the meeting, the guy that doesn't sit still, the guy that asks the tricky questions, the guy that asks why, um, and it can be quite annoying. I'm sure there's a few CEOs that have been annoyed by me. Um, but, but but on that note, by the way, I guess the difference I would say in myself is that even though I ask why, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. So I'm not just mm-hmm. being the antagonist in the corner or the guy that, you know, I'm coming from a, when I ask why, it's because I potentially can see a better way. I'm prepared to go through the pain to get there. And if you want me to deliver, I'll deliver it, you know. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest compliments I got when I left Yellow from one of the owners was everything you said you would do, even though we knew it was a big hill to climb, you delivered in spade, spadefuls. Um, mm-hmm. so, so I guess I became comfortable uh, after the parenting place and I was CEO there that um, if you do change the right way and you bring the team on which we did we I think we had a very successful nine years there of, of rapid growth um, uh, it, it's actually really fun and it, it's okay to be that guy do you know what I mean it's okay to be the guy mm-hmm. that because often uh, you would have found this too Tash often when you're the person in the, in the meeting asking the tough questions or pressing the pressing the, the boundaries or whatever it might be 
you can often be seen a little bit as a troublemaker, as someone who's been disrespectful, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But when I got to the parenting place, I had a board there, like guys like uh, Sir John Graham and Sir Ralph Norris, who really relished in those questions and really allowed me to really push into the uncomfortable and then allowed me to, to go for it. Now, the negative there is if I didn't deliver, Disaster. Right. So the key is to deliver. So I guess I'm really thankful to those guys because they made me realise that that side of me is actually a bit of a I don't hate to use the word superpower, but it's kind of it's it's what I bring to a team. Um, Mm -hmm. And so from then on, I only looked for roles where I was allowed to flourish like that. Um, I went into a role before the parenting place where I had to see the C had to say to the CEO, "I'm really bad for you, and you're really bad for me." So we need to part because mm-hmm. I was pissing mm-hmm. him off because I was trying to push, and he was pissing me off because he just wanted to stop. Yeah. So it's it's being comfortable in your own skin, maybe. It's probably yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and learning that takes some takes some hard oh, knocks, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Are there are there significant? I love the opportunity for a story, and a good story always has drama. So, oh. are there are there significant uh, lessons that you've learned the hard way that that stick with you in terms of uh, in terms of sort of the icons or the touchstones of yeah, I've learned that once and I'm I'm not doing that again. Yeah, there's a couple um, come to mind. The first one is um, you ever had a three sixty done? Yeah, um, they say they do so. <laughs> Uh, they really suck. Unless you can handpick, unless you can handpick all of the people that are that are participating, and then bribe them with cinnamon rolls yeah. for a solid three months. That's exactly. brutal. And you know, there's a place for them, and I and I and I don't. Um, uh, you know, I think I think being open to hearing feedback from people that work for you, people that work beside you, and people that you work for is actually not a bad thing. Uh, it's just a shame mm-hmm. that we've had to create such a transactional system to to, to make that happen. Good nice for happen actually. Oh, it's brutalitarian, it, it I think. Yeah. It's 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 yeah the first, potentially unhealthy. It is. But the first time I got one was actually at a parenting place. And it was one of those it was a classic because I am quite a sensitive guy too. So it was one of those classic times where um every a lot of things they loved about me, they hated about me as well. <laughs> uh, initially. Um so and and often it was was that the big one for me, the big learning one for me was um you have a conversation, you look like you're having a conversation, I feel like you're listening, but I don't know, you've already made up your mind. And it was a big, big lesson for me that um, I'm quite an energetic guy, so um, I had to learn that there were certain people based on the way they process, etc. And I, I remember one guy in particular, every time I went into his office, when we had offices in those days, I used to take a deep breath before I'd open the door and I had to change my way, my body language, to learn how to stop and be peaceful and to allow the person half an hour just to do what they do, which is communicate and talk. Um, and that was a big lesson I learned out there. So um, not listening was something I wasn't very good at doing. I think I'm a lot better now, but initially I was pretty bad at it. Um, the other thing that I learned was, um, and this was from a coach actually who taught me, he said, one of the challenges you have, Bruce, is that um, – you'll see a fire in a room and you'll be going, there's a fire, there's a fire, there's a fire. And everyone else is going, it's just a flame. And you go, no, it's a freaking fire. And then you get really pissed off because you're going, can you not see the damn fire? <laughs> and so you get impatient and you get almost bullish. Um, and part of it is because sometimes it's because I see it before other people do. Uh, I see the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I'm just being arrogant. And it was a really hard lesson for me to learn Um about messaging and how I communicate. Look, there's a fire there. People are choosing to ignore it for various reasons. So how do I bring them on board in a way that they can see it and then together as a team we work out a solution? So I go, there's a fucking fire. I need to sort it out and and you guys are all idiots type of was my initial reaction. Um, um, And that was quite a hard lesson to learn and uh, I still trip up on that sometimes where I've just got to just slow down and go, and just thank you for the journey. Yeah. Have you got any tools or habits that you use to help you kind of stay in play with that 
the patients, the taking people on the journey and, and the listening? Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, one of the things I found really helpful um, is understanding how my team's made up. So Enneagram, mm-hmm. I don't know if you come across Enneagram. Huge yeah. fan. Enneagram, I, I now take my team through it. So the first thing I do, I do is I put up my one and go, I'm an eight, which basically means I'm a pain <laughs> in the ass. Um, and this is and this is where I'm, this is my five is when I'm unhealthy and my two is when I'm healthy. And so when I'm in my two, I'm in my vulnerable state. And when I'm in my five, I'm in my dictatorial slash, you know. And it was really good for me to share that with the team. And then as I took the team through it, I understood that if you're a three or you're a five or you're a nine, and for those who have listened to this, it's worth checking out Enneagram. It's amazing. That once I start, we'll put it in the show notes. Once I understood kind of how you ticked, then then I um, really took a conscious effort to go, okay, this is the three. This is how I need to communicate this to them, and just trying to be more self-aware, trying to force myself to be more self-aware of other people and how they operate. Um, that's mm. the one. One. The other side of it is my wife will kick me in the knees every time I'm on that dick. <laughs> she, you met my wife. I mean, she doesn't let me get away with murder. Nothing. So yeah, yeah, um, and then I have very, very strong children as well. But yeah, it's just been aware of I'm a big guy. I'm six foot four. I walk into a room and just not trying, just being aware, not to suck the oxygen out, just to, just to sit down, be less. Um, mm-hmm. And so only the last five years I've really learned that to be and to be better at that. Yeah. yeah I, so I want to I want to come back and talk about futurism and some of that more kind of strengths oriented stuff but let's just dive into that for a second um being big guy big personality big agenda and ability to deliver change how do you carry vulnerability because you've talked about being vulnerable and being vulnerable with your team and creating you know a culture of well i would call it radical candor in order to facilitate change how do how do you carry that and how do you embody that in your in your being again i love your question because it's again i think about the last five years you know i was brought up to believe that vulnerability was something you never showed uh and vulnerability was mistaught to me as you know crying in the corner you know being a wuss being a wimp you know that's how i was taught and brought up um and it's only the last sort of five, ten years. I mean, kids bring vulnerability. Your wife helps you with those sort of things. But in business, I'm talking about in business and that sort of stuff. It's only the last five, five or so years where I've just learned that actually vulnerability can be a superpower. Man, if you embrace, the more I embrace and open with my team about who I am as a person, what I struggle with. So give you an example. When you're a CEO, I had I had this myth that when I got out of the car and walked into the room and walked into the building or my office or whatever, you would never see any other side of me other than me being the CEO. Because mm-hmm. I had to be the guy that always looked like I had to shit together. I had to be the guy that it's just a big lock I'm trying not to swear on this show, sorry. Um, <laughs> you go it's for just it. fucking shit. Your authentic self is welcome. <laughs> okay, here. but I'm just, it's just bullshit, right? I, I, it just, it, it's actually wrong. And, the, and so over the last five or so years, I've just been stepping into my vulnerability and now I'm people inside of myself going, so saying things like, I'm really struggling with this. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is. It doesn't mean you don't know what to do, it just means that I'm struggling with it. So, um, uh, so uh, part of it, uh, part of it, to be fair, has been uh, part of my cultural journey. Um, so, like if you do your pipihara stuff, it, it teaches you that sort of stuff about vulnerability. Part of it is about sitting in the. I love Brene Brown. You know, vulnerability is not necessarily crying in the corner. She's not saying that. What she's saying is, are you prepared to sit in the difficult times? Are you prepared to sit in the uncomfortable conversation? Are you prepared to sit in the pain? That's vulnerability, and that's also what it is to be a great leader. Um, and I've really embraced that. So, for example, um, every single person that I've got had to have a tough conversation with about their career, I have done one-on-one. So the hundred mm-hmm. I moved at Yellow, I did them one-on-one. I didn't delegate it. I didn't put it in an envelope. I sat down with the person and, said, and I said, look, you know where we're going. I know it's really tough. This affects you. It affects your role. Um, and I'm sorry. You know, And they think you're a dick. They hate you. But it's not about you. You sit in that pain. You sit in that discomfort. And then you move to a place of going, I know this is really uncomfortable, but my job now is to help you succeed. What does it look like to move you and help you get beyond this organization or whatever? Mm. Uh, And it's really uncomfortable. (laughs) But it's so important to do it. And I think I've actually built stronger relationships even in those difficult times um, by doing that rather than just being the guy that, that does it from the tower. 
Um, and I'll tell you honestly, um, Tash, the more I step into this space, the more it pays back gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like how? Uh, relationships are real. Relationships become mm-hmm. more honest. Um, you have you get more ability to have an adult conversation. I mean, adult, adult. I mean, how many situations have you been where people are just not willing to have a tough conversation? Um, we see a lot. We've seen it a lot over the last year. You know, where actually let's have a big tough old conversation. I feel emotional about it. You feel emotional about it. We may never agree, but that doesn't matter. We're two adults, two humans having a conversation, and love is still the centre of the conversation. And we we'll walk away holding hands. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that that happens, and the more I embrace that, the, it, it, it is. It, it's. I think it's what humanity should be: is having those tough conversations, having those adult, adult human conversations. Um, mm. It's easier to run away from the way. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. Um, thank you for sharing that. I, I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between futurism and vision and transformation because there are a couple of ways. I mean, my my background and my pathway into transformation, other than from a young age, always wanting to help people change the way they think, yeah. um, which I think we have in common. Yeah, it's called fuck shit up. Let me let me make everything better by first making it all worse for yeah, you yeah. by giving you an entirely different perspective yeah, yeah. on which to see the world. Um, but but my so my journey, a lot of my journey to transformation as a as a as a work as a career as a art form it was through uh, human centered design yeah. and and these principles right. of kind of design thinking. So what does it mean for the human being at the center of it all? Um, and I, as I have. Um, journeyed through that one of the things that I often find myself referencing in conversations with people is what's that expectation that people have of working with me as a transformation strategist as someone who is going to bring them the answers versus somebody who is going to help them find the answers you know on that on that journey and so there's that crossover again of consultation versus collaboration and how do you effectively lead change and that's where I think there's an interesting spot to um well, A, I'm interested in whether or not you've had that same experience. Um, and then I'm interested to talk about the intersection of of futurism and having an ability to see a vision of where we can go, you know, yeah. that strategic foresight that sees the that sees the flame that will become the fire that nobody's paying attention to. Yeah. And how that relates to helping people navigate their way towards change. Yeah. So, yeah, I, 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 and I could be wrong here, but I, I struggle with the word futurism or futurist or I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I like Star Trek and all that, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, but I get what you're saying. And I guess the other word that we use. Well, it's overused for starters, probably, right? So, yeah. you know, you talk about futurism. Are you talking about, you know, the art movement of the 1920s? Yeah, are you talking right, about true. sci-fi? Yeah. Are you talking about, you know, there's, there, yeah. And yeah, but I agree. I equally, we could use a better but word. I, oh, that's fine. But I equally would argue that the word vision can be misused and, 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 and set up wrong as mm-hmm. well. Um, and I think, I think, I, I was trying to think of a simple way. I think if I think about the spirit where we are now, I kind of go, what, it still comes down to me, but a basic kind of thing you know, what, what itch are we trying to scratch at the end of the day? You know, what are we actually trying to resolve? Is that still the same thing, right? So, the, so the spirit, for example. Um, uh, so, so the spirit is. You know, I said this today. Someone I said, I, you know, I love being the first in things. I love the fact that when we win, win at sport, or we win at art, or we win at culture, or we win at these things. But it's still in New Zealand, we're 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 winning at things that we shouldn't be proud of, like youth suicide and um, you know um, uh, bad sexual health for young people. There's things that we're not winning at. So there's a big thing that we still need to solve. So. Is mm-hmm. that now and for the future? Well, yeah, it is. It's still there. It's still there now, and it's still going to be there for the foreseeable future. The question then I ask is, is what we're doing now, if I, if I can see that being the future, that's the pathway. So it could be the same if you've got a product and we want to deliver a product. Is it going to solve something in the future? The question I then ask is, are we relevant for today, and are we uh, moving in a way that's going to make us relevant for the next five, ten years to, to, to solve that problem? And, I, and I, I, mm. I go down to that sort of basic fundamental. So, for example, um, you, take, you take diversity, for example, the way we communicate through diversity or through culture or even through gender. You know, a lot of our language that we use on our websites and on our printed media and all that sort of stuff is still 
from the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Mm-hmm. So even though what we're trying to solve as a big concept is still there, we're not being futuristic in regards to being open and acceptable and creating a safe place for the future generation. So I, I, that's kind of how right. I sort of pull it apart. So I look at the product first and I go, is there still a need for it? Is it still relevant? Um, is, there a, 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 is there still a need for it in the future? Uh, and if so, then how do we make sure ourselves continue to be relevant today, but relevant tomorrow as well? Uh, and mm. and that's where change comes in, right? So you take things like, um, oh, I'll give you an example. So again, the rainbow tick, right? I've sat in organisations where we get the rainbow tick and we put a flag on our desk that says that's you know, beautiful colours. Oh, we've succeeded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the funny yeah, right. puckle is, is still binary. Or well, the language we use is still binary. Mm-hmm. So we haven't actually changed mm-hmm. at all. So we, re- we, right. recognize that, we recognize that as an organization, we need to move to a future state, but we haven't actually gone through the hard change to get there. And so, if, mm-hmm. so when mm-hmm. I think of futurist, I kind of go, is it, is it based on a, on a need? Uh, and I'm talking with you in a specific organisation, right? Because there are those futurists that sit outside an organisation and, and would say, in three years' time, we're all not going to wear shoes. And this is what I, that's a different sort of futurist, right? I'm talking about yeah, with, yeah. with what you've been entrusted or given to. Uh, are we still trying to save the solve problem? And then are we relevant? And can we still continue to be relevant? So yellow is a really good example. Yellow is a print-based medium. We know, you know, I know, that print eventually will be dead. And, and, it, and, mm-hmm. that, and well, at and least it's no longer—it's no longer the primary way that people yeah. find data, sorry, so, right? Sorry, yeah. actually, better way. Print's not dead necessarily. You could say there could be a resurgence back to reading books and stuff like that. It's probably a bit too broad, but in that particular framework, there are better and smarter ways of doing it. So it's mm-hmm. still relevant to today, but really, what we're trying to ask ourselves in five years' time: how are people going to start perusing data? And then, how do you build mm. your digital platform and your your stack so that it can change and mold and pivot? to suit that for the future. So that's the way you think of it differently. That's kind of how I start. That's, that's yeah, my theory. Yeah. Enough, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's any good, but it seems to work so far. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I don't, yeah, I always start with the product or the purpose first, I guess, rather than going, mm-hmm. rather than being more of an idealist and saying, well, wouldn't it be great if we had 10 ships in the future for the spirit? Yeah, great. Does that solve the problem? No, not really. It just gives us 10 ships. It's not necessarily helpful. Yeah, 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 right. The, that that keeping that focus on the a rigid focus on or laser focus, one might say. Yeah. Um, on on what is the problem yeah. and how does the problem change or not change across a across a timeline yeah. of changing context. So purpose for purpose of being. So take yellow for example. It's a really good example. Is there still a need for Jim, uh, Jim's tire shop in Taranaki? to tell people that he exists so he can change the tyres on your car? Yes, there is. Are there people still looking for Jim to change the tyres on their car? Yes, there is. Does the paper model work? Well, it kind of does, but actually I find it easier and easier and easier to search that on my phone. Great. Have we got a mechanism to solve that? No. What are we going to do to do that? And can we build it in a way that future proofs itself for at least the next five or ten years? That's kind of where I start. Mm-hmm. That's a very basic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Something that I've often said is that every organisation, um, there are two there are two storytelling roles, yeah. and they're both equally important. But you have to use them yeah. well. One is that one is that that you know, and I'll use having established that it's not a perfect word. I'll continue to use the word futurist. Yeah, right? That, there's that. There's that. Is that, that. Yeah. There's the role of the futurist, the person who can tell the story of where we are going, yeah. and then there is the role of the person who is the historian who can tell you the story of where we've been. Yeah. And you know, you've you've mentioned you started what we know one of those pillars of transformation for you is you know what can we what lessons from the past have we have we learned? Yeah. How how do you engage with or interact with the historians? Yeah. Um, to to bring them into that journey because you're you're in an organisation now that has plenty well, of it them. does yeah um, so when I say I look at the past um, you celebrate it so so mm-hmm. so um, I often say you celebrate the past and you pick out the gold that you can take forward to the future right so there be so we know whether you like it or not a tool ship which is a, a type of a it freaking works but. Like, there's nothing I would change on that. So I celebrate that. However, mm-hmm. 
the needs of a young person today are vastly different in regards to the, the challenges we're dealing with, especially around mental health or sexual identity. So the mechanism of the program on that, can you hear a baby crying in the background? Uh, the mechanism of the yeah. downstairs, um, it's not mine. I'm through that stage. <laughs> I do want grandchildren, but I'm through that stage. So, so the celebration is that that mechanism is beautiful and it's worked for 50 years and I'd never change it. But the languaging mm-hmm. and the way we deliver it or the, the audience that we're talking to changes significantly today and we go forward. So what, and you're right. I mean, our chairperson has been on the, he's been the chairman. He's virtually the founder since 1977. So I'm very, very conscious of reading the room and going, I celebrate everything you do. Like New Zealanders are so much better off because of what you, you do. But we need to be reflective of the culture today and we need to make sure mm. that the way we communicate and deliver our service is reflective of the, day, of the culture of today and tomorrow. Um, so I think you should do both. I, I, I don't. I think, I think painting a vision for the future or being a futurist without celebrating the past, I think it's foolhardy. We couldn't have cars if mm. it wasn't for Henry Ford. So we should celebrate the fact that he one day just invented, we should celebrate that. And now we can watch F1 and enjoy it which is the future. You know what I mean? But it came from the past. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense? Um, kind of. yeah, yeah, it does. In an evolving culture, yeah. um, how do you manage the tension between that which that of the of history which needs to be celebrated yeah. and that of history which comes with some, yeah. you know, unhelpful baggage? Uh, and, and that, because that's something that is, as, as somebody who is making change, that's something that I think we wrestle with consistently oh. in every environment that we find ourselves yeah. in. Information technologists are the worst. <laughs> IT. I know, because I took over an IT department. I was at Yellow. Um, because what they do is there's so much vested interest in building something that they don't want to They call it change. technical debt. They don't want to change technical it. Technical debt. We spent a million. <laughs> in fact, the day, after they, the day after I took over the technology department, I dumped three years of work and just moved, I just put it right because it wasn't working. Um, oh, you would have been popular that I day. I wasn't very popular. I was for the board, but not so much for the team. Anyway, all that to say... Um, so we shouldn't be scared to change. Um, but you're right. Um, there is a certain culture within an organisation, uh, in every organisation. I don't care who you are. Uh, and every CEO or board member or line manager would, would be dealing with this on a daily basis that people just don't want to change. And they can't. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reality to that, that if they're doing a function that doesn't really matter, it's fine. But if you decide that as an organization, this is the tough part, if you decide as an organization, it's change or die, and in a lot of cases it is, then that's where the tough conversations come to us, and that's where the vulnerability comes. You've got to do it. You've got no choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so often you can get organized. I've worked for organizations where you've had staff that have been there 20, 30, 40 years, and they just don't want to change. So then you go back to the point of going, well, why are we here? We're trying to deliver something. Great. Is it, is it relevant for today? No. So we have to change. We've got no choice if we don't change. Um, so the example, when I talked to you about the organisation that would close down in February, my, uh, my thing was, I know you love what you love. I know that it gives you much joy, but the fact is it's broken. <laughs> and if you don't change <laughs> in April, I'm going mm. to be closing the doors. Do you want that? Because I don't want it because the need that you're serving, which is kids with cancer, is still there. Yeah. So if we don't change, then those thousand kids that we help every year will have nowhere to go. Which, once again, is an example of refocusing on the problem Correct. as opposed to the process Correct. and and then evaluating that against risk versus reward. reward. Exactly. And I think that's a really good point. And so so sometimes, some, and that's the tough part. So, so again, coming back to yellow, uh, I, I sort of flippantly said I changed the system, but the system we were building was not, was not really good for our future. In fact, it was making it was, was tying us up. So we had to pivot it. Now, the, the pivot meant that I went from a development mindset, developer mindset, to someone who knows how to integrate systems, different skill set. Mm-hmm. That means that you mm-hmm. had 100 people over here, as an example, who were developers, who all realized that we're tying ourselves up in knots. But we had to pivot to, to deliver a better product, which is with an integrative mindset. Um, that's where the toughness comes in those calls, right? Mm, yeah change makers always have to make hard calls otherwise don't do it as a job (laughs) absolutely um and i want i want you to close out on some of that on some of that advice but before i let you go um i want to 
uh, macro change is is achieved through micro change, mm-hmm. right? That's something so, that if so you, I think those are a bit take, dumber like me. You mean big change versus the, from the little stuff? <clears throat> yeah, okay, yes. good. Well, all all big changes yeah. comprise of lots of little steps, yeah. right? So you, if if we use the example of the diversity mm-hmm. flag, right? Diversity flag one small part of actually the the macro change which yep. is let's actually embrace a truly diverse culture within our organization Great. and let our whole organization and behaviors exactly it. so one of the things that i'm curious about is is how macro is too macro for your blood how big is too big for your blood because there's a there's a pattern here where you you move to solve problems that are that are evident because there are organizations or structures that need you as a change artist to come in and help them achieve certain change. Is there a point at which your perspective or desire for change moves beyond that? For example, yeah. could you see yourself could you see yourself tackling a major social problem or yeah. um, or do you see what you're doing now as as contributing to that? It's a micro versus it's macro a really, question it's, it's, about how far yeah, do you go. It's a really, really good, um, good thing that I think about a lot. So really, yeah, I do, I do, because I kind of go from the point of view. Like, so, lot, so for example, a lot of people get in politics because they feel that they then get into a role of a minister. At a macro level, they can probably shift, shift something. That can right. That usually. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, but then more often than not, you become one of the company company boys, and then you you, you get conformed, and you become you know. Um, I remember saying to someone who wanted to get into politics: when you're a backbencher, you you will have to comply and compromise at some stage, otherwise you'll never become a frontbencher, and then and then you might not be able to shift change unless you do become a front. You know what I mean? It's tricky, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think become the head of the civil servants correct. that are writing the so, the, the legislation. So where, where I think I've settled on this um, is. Um, I think I have said on this, is I think change can happen from the community up rather than the government down. That's how I sort of say. So the government mm-hmm. down, there, there's probably a need for it, and I don't want to get into that because that's the whole complex subject itself. But I think if you can start to make a difference at a, at a macro level, sorry, a micro level at a, at a community and start to shift things. Um, so I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. So when I was at the parenting place, we had a product called Toolbox. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a basically a parenting program in a box. I loved that program. And what it was is that if you were a mum in, in Tauranga, uh, a, a single mum or married or partnered up, whatever, it doesn't matter, um, and you had a kid and you wanted to learn how to be a better mum, you would sign up for Toolbox and we would train you. And then we'd send you the box and the box would arrive at your house and you'll get 10 other parents in your house. And you'll put the video on, you'll have your work box. And as together as a group, you would talk about parenting. It would be guided. Now, what I love about that, what I really love about this, and we saw this happen so many times, was I'm a single dad in that group. And I'm really struggling. And I'm struggling with my little Tommy and I'm tired, I'm beaten up, and I'm just had life's at the end of the tether. Suddenly I'm in a group of peers where one of the other parents goes, Hey Bruce, looks like you're struggling a bit, mate. Um, how about we take Tommy for a Saturday and you just go and have a day where you just go and have a coffee and walk the beach and so suddenly you've got respite care happening and social care happening with no system in place other than you just people getting together and just being good humans, you know? And that, but that mm-hmm. happened from a program that we developed, and it happened so many times. Um, or uh, uh, normality is a really interesting word because uh, oh, yeah, I see what's happening with Tommy. That's happening with my little Jamie. This is what we've done about it. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll try that. So I love that sort of community up, giving the tools at a community level, and then seeing change happen and, and exponentially mm-hmm. grow from that level. I think it's much, it's much more rewarding in some ways, and I feel, uh, and it feels like you're doing something. I think in the macro area, sometimes you get lost in the detail. <laughs> there's so much, it's, it's just so big and vast. And, I, you know, mm-hmm. as I said to you before, Tash, and I'll say this again, it's all very well saying you want to change something. It's all very well saying, oh, we should do this. It's all, all very well being the guy in the question, go, why, and all that stuff. But until you're prepared to put your brave undies on, stand in the pain and the vulnerability and go, right, fuck it, we're going to do it, and then do it, and then deliver on it. I'm, I read, as Brene Brown says, and I love this, you either, um, uh, she, she says two things which I really love. Is that, uh, if you're not in the ring fighting the fight, then, I, then your opinion is not really relevant. It's, I've done, I've done mm-hmm. my version of that. And the other one is stand in your truth or stand outside and hustle for your worthiness. So you either stand in your right, truth yeah. or you stand outside. And I've done that a lot. Mm-hmm. I've always been the guy always hustling for my worthiness rather than standing in my truth, standing in my truth now. But I kind of go, 
it's all very good to talk change. It's all very well to dream. It's all very well, but until you're prepared to put your boots on and get stuck in and actually do it, mm. I just think you, then you're just frustrating people. There's something in there as well that I think is unspoken, but it talks to a management and a rationalization of um, ambition uh, that that is contrasting the size of a change or the scale of a change, perhaps in terms of its, you know, for want of a better phrase, its public eye, right? Yeah. Like the size of a change versus the versus the the scope of the change, yeah. which is actually how how deep and how broad. Yeah. Of a change, can I achieve as opposed to yeah. necessarily the 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 yeah. the size of it? And I think there's 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 some wisdom and some maturity in that, um, yeah. where you know, as I say, it's out, you know, it's a rationalization of of ambition in of itself is worthy. Yeah. Um, if you're somebody who wants to make good change in the world, ambition's really important right. along the yeah. way. But but actually, that rationalization of it, where where what is my ambition? Is it is it size or scope of change? Yeah. Um, for people who are listening to this and going, well, it's all very well for you, Bruce. You've been a you've been a CEO. You've been a, a chief transformation officer. You've been the guy yeah. that's been given the keys to the kingdom, well, yeah. and you've been given permission, right? And there's permission is a key word or mindset. Mm. You've been given permission to go ahead and make change. Um, for people who are like, hey, I'm not there yet, but I but I resonate with what you're saying around around the desire and the ability to see that. Um, what words of wisdom? What 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 maturity can you drop into um, the eyes and ears of that conversation? Particularly for people who are perhaps you know in management lines going up. Maybe for people who are you know three four rungs down on the ladder trying to get their ideas heard or trying to be proactive agents of change. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give? What what insights can you drop? Um, I've never chased. I guess I guess my insight would be this simple: is that um, it depends what you're chasing in life, right? So for me, um, I never hang on to things too heavily. I, I kind of go, I'm here for a purpose, and if I can make a difference, I'll, if I'm that sort of guy that needs to make a difference, then I will try and do it. If you're an organisation though, where you can't can't be heard, or whether not don't develop your opinion, or you feel you cannot be your true self because you want to make change, um, then maybe it's you, this is where you've got to start being honest with yourself and, and, and working on self. So, yeah, it's all very well saying you, you're that guy, you've had that position, but that's not always been the case for me. And there's been many organisations I've left because I am the wrong person to be in that organisation. So, for example, it's no point being, if you're a change maker or someone who wants to make a difference or um, whatever it might be, and you're an organisation that doesn't do that and will never do that, you know, then you might need to ask yourself, well, why am I here in the first place? You're just going to frustrate yourself. I'll give you another quick quick little story. So often people, uh, not often, but I get people sometimes saying, oh, you've got such a cool job. You're on a tool ship and you're a CEO and, and you're running a not-for-profit and all the blah, blah, blah. And I go, yep, yep, it is cool. Yep, yep. But it comes with sacrifice. You know, mm. I'm not earning the big money I used to earn, but I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. I'm really happy with that because I'm doing something that I want to do. And then I'll get someone to say, oh, I'd love to do that. And I go, cool. So then my next question is, what are you prepared to live on to get there? Mm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Well, I've got kids in private school, so I need 100 grand for that. And I've got this and that and the other. So sometimes change does come from sacrifice. Sometimes change comes from being self-aware or willing to change yourself. And sometimes change comes from the fact that um, that uh, you need to have a, have a look at your time on this earth and go, you know, what do I want to be known for? You know, what, do I, what do I want to leave behind me? What legacy do I want to do? And... Can I or will I do that now? Um, mm. And the third, final thing I'd say is never be scared in a meeting to give your opinion. As long as you do it with respect and paraha, uh, and you've thought it through, um, their response to it is their responsibility. If your boss shuts you down and cuts you down, then you've got a bigger problem to worry about than whether your idea is a good idea or not. To be fair. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that we've been talking about this season is that um, is that stories are the strategy um they're the strategy for change they're the they're the they're the roadmap um for it and they're also the outcome right you do you do transformation well you get a great story at the end um so i want to um invite you in closing to um uh to share what's your what's what's the most What's the most profound transformation story of all the change you've of all the change you've seen that you've participated in that you've observed from afar the moments you wish you'd been in the room and you weren't. Um, what are 
what's what's that one story that that sits with you and maybe it's a maybe it's a lighthouse story maybe it's a beacon on the road maybe it's a yeah i mean i don't know the story i'm in now is really cool um in regards to change because i have a board and again when i when i went for the job today here at spirit um I, I came into not, no, I didn't come into the interview arrogantly, but I came into the interview with a very clear agenda of kind of like, if you want me, then this is what I'm going to bring to the table. You've got to be sure that you want me. Because <laughs> if you don't, that's okay. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And I asked some pretty tough questions. And I remember asking up a chairman a question around the LGBT community and saying, look, you know, our young people in this space are very comfortable, but for the, for the most part, a lot of New Zealand isn't still. You know, and, and, and my chairman, who's in his 70s, answered the question beautifully for me was um, what we do has to reflect the culture that we're serving and if it doesn't then we don't deserve to exist basically I thought that was such a beautiful way um, of sort of describing exactly what you what you're saying to me that was a real lighthouse moment to go for me it's really important to surround myself with people that genuinely genuinely at a deep level want to try and be either allies because you may not, you know, um, or to be part of the process of change and to be willing to to, to sacrifice and be vulnerable in that space. Um, when you find that ticking, it's awesome. That's where I am now. And I've got a team that are like that now. I haven't always had that. Harsh. I've had times where it's just been a complete clusterfuck. Oops, sorry, I probably shouldn't have said that, but you know what I'm saying. Um, but, um, but for me, that's probably the key thing. Is, is making sure you surround yourself with people that are, yeah, that accept you for who you are, give you the space to do what you need to do, um, but also bring a beauty to the table in regards to things that they want to see change as well. That was Bruce Pilbrow, CEO of the Spirit of Adventure New Zealand Trust and one of the original transformationists. I hope that you found elements in that episode that provoked you, inspired you and potentially challenged your thinking because that's what we like to do. And if you are somebody who is looking to make change, I hope that's given you some awesome pillars to dive into on your journey. I'm Tash McGill and I am The Transformationist. If you would like to rate, review or share this podcast, I would be really grateful for your support. There are a couple of other ways that you can get involved in the work that I do. You can subscribe, obviously, um, but you can also engage in some of my other work and writing. Uh, You can head to tashmcgill.substack.com. You can head to tashmcgill.com. You can find me on social media, but my invitation to you is let's connect I want to hear your stories of transformation and I am interested to know what you are curious about in the process and way of making change happen whether it's in your workplace in your organisation in your community let's talk about it let's make change happen let's make good change